Let me tell you something about Greek religion, the ancient Greek religion, that is. In, in their particular system, you probably already know this, and it was the same for the, the Romans, and we'll be looking at Romans 14, but we're also going to be looking at 1 Corinthians, which is more of the Greek culture. But uh, both of those societies had many gods that they worshipped, the, the, the pantheon, and, and in these kind of temples like this Greek temple you see here, they would, they would have uh, multiple gods to be worshipped. One of the worship activities that they had was offering food to the gods, and they would do that in their temple worship. You can see in this, whoever painted this, I don't know, sorry, uh, this is the sort of thing they would do in their temple worship. The sacrifices were generally made to buy the favor of the gods, and it was for a range of issues. Uh, They wanted the favor in, in healing, prosperity, protection. They wanted their their crops, of course, to grow and so forth. Thankfulness to the gods providing these favors was also a reason for their sacrifices. So they were trying to show thankfulness. And when the sacrifice was given, it would be divided into three parts. Part of the, the, the animal sacrifice went to the god. Usually that was done in the form of a burnt offering. Part actually went to the priest that, that ministered in the temple, and then part was actually given back to the one who was making the sacrifice, to the person there. And so from this religious practice, there was three issues that ended up arising in, in Bible times here. With, even within our New Testament, there was issues that arose as a result of these religious practices. First of all, the priest were unable to, uh, to, of course, personally use all of the, the meat that came to them. There was way more than they could possibly eat. So they would end up selling uh, a portion of that meat back into the city markets. And so the question for the believers was this. Could they buy the meat and eat that meat even though it had previously been offered to false gods, to these idols? That was an issue that Paul addresses here in Romans 14, as well as in 1 Corinthians. A second issue involved the temple banquet. They would have these big elaborate feasts. And so the question here for the believers in places like Rome and Corinth and others involved going into the pagan temples and and could they participate in the meals that were offered in these pagan temples? One theological journal said this, I'm quoting, The sacrificial occasion was also the occasion for a meal. The diners dining on the sacrificial victim, the sacrificer and his company, by eating of the sacrifice, participated with the God, small g, God. It was a meal shared. All the meat had to be consumed. Temples provided banqueting rooms for the purpose of the meal. They could be hired out for private functions in much the same way as one can hire a room today at a reception house or club. While some functions held in these rooms were purely social, others were held as gestures of gratitude to the God for such happy events as a cure, a birth, a coming of age, or a marriage. End quote. These were big things in Roman and Greek culture. So that was, that was an issue, these temple banquets. Another 
issue, the third issue arising from the meat offered to idols, involved the, the issue of sometimes believers would be invited to unbelievers' houses, and most likely the unbeliever had probably gone that day to the city market and purchased meat that had been offered to false gods. So could the believer attend someone's private home, this, this private function in someone's, an unbeliever's house, and could they eat that meat in good conscience? That question of eating meat, idle meat, and the three surrounding issues was seen in two general viewpoints. In Romans 14, uh, the Bible's looking at this from a Jewish point of view. In 1 Corinthians, it's coming from a Gentile point of view. So just need to keep that in mind as we look at these two different chapters. So how does, you might be sitting here thinking at this point, okay, how does this relate to me? How does this possibly re- relate to Christians today? Because we don't have the same issues, do we? None of us are going into the city market and buying meat that's been offered to idols. Are you? Maybe, maybe you are and I don't know about it. But uh, <laughs> I don't think any of us are. Do these particular passages even apply to us today? Do they? Well, this is where you need to understand biblical principles and live those biblical principles out in your life. They're very, very important. And so while you may not deal with the same practices that Corinth and Rome did, the principles still apply to you today. So the responses that Paul gave here can apply to any gray area issues that you and I deal with on a constant basis. Now remember, gray area issues, different from black and white. Okay, Black is, is clearly sin issues. God says, don't do that. That's a black issue. God clearly says... Do this, all right? We're talking white issues. Okay, these are things God doesn't clearly spell out for you in the scriptures, and and we do them every day. There's heaps of things that we we just we just rely upon the Holy Spirit to to help us as we we come to His Word. We we live out the principles of Scripture. Okay, so we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul has to say about these gray area issues. And particularly, how do believers and Christians live amongst people who are, who are weaker? That, that's how the Bible describes them. Okay, So these weaker brothers and sisters in Christ are, are immature. Okay? And that, that's not a put down, that's not an insult. Because every one of us, if we're not there at the moment, we were at some point. Okay, You just need to be humble and admit that, that we've all been immature. In the faith. Okay? So let's, let's address these, these issues that Paul's addressing here. Number one, who is this weaker brother that we're talking about here? Well, let's look at the scriptures. The scripture talks about this weaker brother. And by the way, you can include sisters in Christ here. So look at Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything. By the way, the eat anything, eating the meat, 
that's offered to idols. That's what it's referring to there. So, so one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. We'll stop there for the moment. Let me also read to you the the companion passage that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 8. It's on the screen here for you. Verse 7 says, Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Verse 10, For if anyone sees You who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? So you've heard that word weak several times. You've heard it in Romans, you've heard it in Corinthians. So what does the word weak mean? Well, it means different things in different contexts, but in this context here it means Uh, The word weak means to be in a state of incapacity, to be limited, to be feeble. By the way, that's uh, not meant to be demeaning. It's not meant to be a put-down. It's not an insult. But when we think of the weaker brother and sister here, we should think of this person as being limited in regard to spiritual matters. Not physical, not intellectual, but spiritual matters. Okay, you could say this person is feeble and not spiritually healthy nor spiritually rich, rich when it comes to spiritual issues and characteristics. And so the Bible says the weaker brother is weak in four different areas. Okay, let's talk about these. How is this person weak? And, and you might want to look at yourself and see, is this me? Is this someone I know? It might be you. The Bible might be describing you. Okay. Notice, first of all, Romans 14, verse 1, that the weaker believer, brother and sister in Christ, is weak in the faith. He's weak in the faith. Verse 1 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Now, it doesn't have the word the there, but uh, this is talking about the body of spiritual truth. Typically, believers call it the faith. And why is he weak, by the way? Why is this person weak in the faith? Well, the weaker brother is generally new to Christianity. 
they've recently, if you will, come to Christ. And so there's, there's, it's, it's like a baby coming into the world, so to speak. Right? Those who have given birth to physical, earthly babies, you know what that's like. They're helpless when they first come into the world. And the Bible often describes Christians that way when they're born again. So this person's still learning. They've got a lot to learn yet. And that's why they're weak in the faith. Number two, they're weak in knowledge. They're weak in knowledge. Look at verse 2. It says, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So he's weak in knowledge. And to have knowledge, by the way, is to possess information about something. So this new believer in Christ doesn't know everything. By the way, none of us do. But this person knows even less than a mature believer. And so to come to an understanding as a result here of the ability to learn and experience is important. Now someone who is weak in knowledge means the person's untaught in some areas of the Christian life. They obviously don't know everything about the Christian life. By the way, that's why it's important for you to be discipling someone. So those of you who, who've been Christians for a long time, you need to be evangelizing people and discipling people. They need to grow in the Christian life. And so to be honest, we're all probably weak in some areas in regards to our knowledge. I certainly am. Even though I've been saved over 35 years now, I continually grow every day. More and more that I'm learning, I'm growing being more conformed to the image of Christ. I see stuff in Scripture that I've read probably hundreds of times, and I, and I look at it and say, wow, that's cool. Why hadn't I seen that before? So God is, is continually teaching me. I, I'm hopefully growing. That's important. So we probably are, are weak in some areas in regards to our knowledge on spiritual matters. Humility is going to admit that. And so... This, this person is, is weak in the faith, they're weak in knowledge, and number three, they're weak in regards to their conscience. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7 talks about that, the conscience we read earlier. And so the word conscience, by the way, uh, comes from the idea of being aware of information about something. It's the psychological ability which can distinguish between right and wrong. It's a moral sensitivity. By the way, the Bible really never clearly defines what is the conscience, but the Bible does tell you how your conscience functions. It tells us a little bit about the conscience. By the way, your conscience is not a little cricket. Those of you who have ever seen the Disney movies know there's a little cricket by the name of Jiminy Cricket. And there's this, you know, this saying you know, about let your conscience be your guide that comes from Disney. So that is, that is uh, not an accurate representation of conscience, not a biblical conscience anyway. But that's, that's what, let me just say a few things what the Bible says generally about the conscience. Number one, it can function positively, but it also functions negatively. In other words, your conscience is not infallible. <laughs> it can actually mislead you and misguide you. So let's talk about the positive functions first of all. It can evaluate yourself in relation to a standard. It can evaluate yourself in relation to a standard. Of course, that standard needs to be the Bible. 
And if you make the standard anything else, then your conscience can actually mislead you, misguide you. But it also helps you to live consistently with integrity. Now, these are all things coming from various places in the Bible. It can help you to live a consistent Christian life that is pleasing to God. God gave you your conscience. It can also give positive motivation. Like, for example, we see in Romans 13, verse 5, which says, Therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. <laughs> Your conscience might actually help you avoid God's wrath, and that's, that's a good thing. But there are some negative influences of the conscience. For example, it can actually inhibit you unnecessarily. It can also produce feelings of guilt. Sometimes guilt is a right thing. We might feel guilt because of sin. That's appropriate. Sometimes we we feel inappropriately guilty. And, And in those cases, we're believing lies, and we need God's truth to combat those lies. And so for me, I know I'm, I'm constantly preaching the gospel to myself to combat the lies. Sometimes I fall prey to unbelief, and I, and I need verses like Romans 8.1 constantly telling me there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the conscience is not the Holy Spirit. It's not perfect. However, the Holy Spirit can use your conscience to guide you. And so the weaker brother has an untrained, unbiblical conscience in some spiritual matters. So you need to be aware of that. And you might be one of these weak Christians. You need to be aware of this. Because sometimes weak Christians, because they're not aware of how the conscience works and that they're weak in knowledge and the faith, they, they'll sometimes make turn non-essentials into essentials. Sometimes they'll, they'll come to gray area issues like eating meat offered to idols and make a bigger deal out of it than they really should. Okay, So number four, though, uh, not only are they weak in those three areas, they're also weak in regards to their will. They're weak in regards to their will. Again, we read from 1 Corinthians 8, verse 10, and there's a big problem. The weaker brother, even though his conscience is condemning him, and even though he feels it's wrong to participate in some gray area activity like eating meat offered idols, his conscience is condemning him, but the problem is he goes ahead and eats the meat anyway. And it's, he's condemned in the process. What caused him to do that? It, it, was, it was an act of his will. His will is violating his conscience. And so that shows that his motivation here is stronger than his will to actually please God. In this case, he should have listened to his conscience. And so, as a result of this, if, uh, if a weaker Christian violates his conscience that is hopefully coming from the Bible, there can be great damage. Great damage can occur. And so, if, if you're one of these weaker people, these weaker Christians, you need to be aware of this. Because you don't want to damage yourself, spiritually speaking. And if you're a stronger believer, you have to be very careful that you don't damage the, the weaker Christian. You don't want to force them to go against their conscience. There's great damage that can be done. Let's talk about this damage in regard to the spiritual life. Romans 14 talks about this. And in verse 15 it says that 
this, this weak Christian can be grieved. He can be grieved. He or she can be grieved. Look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Notice verse 15 uses the word grieved. This word means to be sad, hurt, sorrowful, or distressed. And by the way, this is more than just some passing kind of a sorrow because your rugby team lost. <laughs> okay, I hope none of your rugby teams lost yesterday. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, sometimes we get, that happens. Or uh, whatever happens in your life, sometimes. Those are just passing sorrows. We, we hopefully get over those things. All right? this, is, this is more important. This regards to the spiritual life. This means serious damage has been done to this particular believer. And how is, that, how is that even possible? How is that happening? Well, a weaker brother can be hurt by watching you, watching another Christian participate in some activity that they think is sin. In this case, meat's been offered to idols, Imagine this, this new believer's just been saved out of idolatry. And, and imagine they see you, you're supposed to be a mature Christian, you walk into the pagan temple and start eating the meat that has been offered to the idols. And this weak Christian's looking at you and saying, wait, that makes no sense. What is he doing? He's got a problem with that. And, and so he is grieved. He is, he is actually hurting. He is distressed by what he is seeing the so-called mature believer do. Doing something that he clearly thought was sin, and wait a minute, why is this person doing it? They've been saved for 40 years. <laughs> and so a weaker brother can be hurt even more severely when he follows the example of another Christian. Because, hey, brother so-and-so just walked into that pagan temple to partake in that festival, Hey, I'm going to go in. <laughs> oh, my conscience is bothering me, but I'm going to go partake of the meat anyway. And so he follows the example of the other Christian, and in the process, he's sinning against his own conscience. You see the problem? Shouldn't do that, but sometimes it happens. Here's what Pastor MacArthur says, I quote, This weak Christian suffers feelings of guilt and forfeits much of his peace of mind, his joy, his witness, and perhaps even his assurance of salvation, end quote. That's how much the person can be grieved. And so they go into the temple, they, they eat the meat, and then they walk out feeling like, ooh, I wonder if I'm actually saved. That's how bad it is. So he can be grieved, number two. He can be destroyed. Did you notice verse 15 mentions the word destroyed? Yeah, look at verse 15. The, the second part of verse 15 says, By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So my friends, if you are a mature believer, beware. Beware. You can actually destroy someone. Not physically, but spiritually. It's a very strong word. It means to ruin, to bring to nothing, to lose, to perish. And so the weaker brother here can be seriously damaged in their spiritual life. By the way, it's not to the point of losing their salvation. 
you, you can't cause anyone to lose their salvation. Jesus himself says in places like John 6 and John 10, when you're in the Father's hand, there is nothing and no one who can take you out of God's hand. It is permanent. You can't, you can't make anyone lose their salvation. That's not what this is talking about. But you can make someone come to the point where their, their, their Christian life is weak. Uh, it actually might become ineffective. And they might, they might stop reading their Bibles and stop praying. They might actually stop going to church. Things like that. Okay? So they become ineffective in the Christian life. Number three, this person can stumble. He can actually stumble. Look at verse 21. It is good not to eat mead or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. By the way, again, you can insert sister in Christ. Okay, this is any Christian. Any Christian can be uh, caused to stumble. The word, by the way, stumble carries this idea of someone striking their foot against something else. You ever done that? You ever walking along and maybe there's a step you didn't see and you you strike your foot against the step that you didn't see and, and you, you fall down? That's the idea here. You're walking along. As a result, this person stumbles over something and they lose their balance and they're flat on the ground. And so in this context here, Paul's not talking about a physical tripping. No, this is a spiritual tripping. Spiritually tripped up. And it is possible for one Christian to spiritually trip up another Christian. And you can do it through your actions. By, by you doing something that for you may be fine, another person sees that, and they, to them they think it's sin, and they see you do it, and they can stumble, spiritually trip up. And so it's important to remember that when a person falls, they get hurt. And so we need to show love. Number four, he can be condemned. This weak Christian can be condemned. Look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. But whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So this word here, condemned, has the idea of being judged guilty. And, and as, as a result of that, you're worthy of punishment. And so, again, in this context here, this condemnation does not come from other people. It's coming from within inside the weaker Christian. It's their own evaluation of their life and circumstances. So, in other words, because he's participated in this activity, even a gray activity, it's, it's, he becomes condemned. It's something that he thought was sinful. He went ahead and did it, and he violated his conscience. And so he's now guilty of, in his eye, in his mind's eye, he's guilty of breaking God's law. And so the weaker brother then expects to be punished from God as a result. And that's, that's why he can be condemned. He's made weak in his relationship with God. Number five, he can be defiled. This person can be defiled. This one's coming from 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, which we read earlier. So the... This word defiled carries the meaning of being soiled. It, it means being smeared with dirt. 
in a spiritual context, it, it refers to being unholy or being unclean. And so when a weaker brother participates in some activity that he considers sinful, this weaker Christian then feels he's unclean before God. That again, that causes him to have a weak relationship with the Lord. So that's why he is considered defiled. Well, praise God, the Bible gives us some instructions. So what are the instructions given to the weaker Christian? And then we'll look at, uh, how about those of us who, who might consider ourselves to be a little more mature in Christ? Well, we'll look at that one last. But what are the instructions given to the weaker Christian? Well, there's uh, several verses that give instructions to this weaker brother. And uh, hopefully you'll find these helpful. But we find some of them in Romans 14 and some in Romans 15. The first one we find in Romans 14, verse 1, and it's basically this. Don't fight over gray areas. Okay? So if, if this is you, don't be ashamed of being a weaker Christian, by the way. We all go through that stage. But sometimes people fight over these gray areas. And if the Bible is not giving a clear prohibition against some specific activity, we don't have the right... We don't have any grounds for making that activity a matter of right or wrong. We can't say this is black and this is white unless God says it's black or white. What happens sometimes is we turn something that God doesn't clearly talk about into something that is black or white. I hope you see a problem with that. Now, you and I have preferences. We all have preferences. We have opinions. And you and I might be very, we might have strong feelings about whether you, we should participate in something or do something or not. But we can't make those an, an issue or, or a, if you will, a battleground between another Christian. I'll give you an example. I'm thinking of someone whom you don't know, one of our original members, in fact, who uh, sadly ended up leaving our church because... Her kids were not homeschooled, and she was getting judged by someone who did homeschool. Okay? And sometimes homeschoolers have really strong preferences and opinions on homeschooling. And by the way, so do I. Okay? We homeschool our children. I think it's important. I think it's the best way to to school your children. But that doesn't mean it's God's will for everybody, okay? I firmly believe that, that it's, you know, you do what God wants you to do, okay? I'm not going to go around judging people and saying, hey, you are living in sin if you send your kids to a public school. I'm not going to do that. I have no grounds to do that. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt homeschool your children. It doesn't say that, Okay? I might try to convince you that homeschooling is the best. And forgive me if I do, because I firmly believe that. But do you, do you see the, the, the issue there? We can turn non-essentials into essentials. Homeschooling is a non-essential. That's just one example. And sadly, this, this woman whom I'm referring to left our church. She, was based, she felt like she was driven off by somebody who came on way too strong about homeschooling. That's just one example out of many how Christians have been, have been divided. Romans 14.1 says, 
You're to welcome this person, but not to quarrel over opinions, <laughs> like homeschooling. <laughs> All right? So don't fight over gray areas. Number two, don't judge other believers because they apply biblical principles differently. You are never going to see eye to eye on all things with all people. It's just not going to happen. And so in verse 3, it says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Whoa. So are you going to disagree with God? God welcomes him. Well, then so should you, right? <laughs> so don't judge the other believer because they apply biblical principles differently. And this is sadly one of the greatest causes of conflicts between Christians. We even end up with different churches over this sort of stuff, sadly. Bible version debates, music wars, so forth. These non-essential things are dividing Christians. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. So nobody likes to be wrong. And we probably always, uh, you know, most, most people think they're right, don't they? But often in our attempt to be right, we feel like we have to judge somebody who disagrees with us. And, and it's more than just judging, by the way. It's sometimes we go as far as calling them sinful because your opinion is different from mine. That's sinful. So here's some godly advice. You only go as far as the Bible goes. And don't go any farther. Number three, do everything for God's glory. Do everything for God's glory. That's what verse six says. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So the one who is abstaining and the one who is partaking is should be doing it to honor God for His glory and honor. Often the problems come when we do what we do with the desire to please other people. We become people pleasers, man pleasers. Or at least we try to fit in with other people. And so the weaker brother has to focus on honoring God. The reality is you can't please any everybody all of the time anyway. So who's the one you need to please? God. Please Him. In the process, yes, you're going to make some people angry. Okay. But uh, you've got to strive to please God with your life. And Colossians 3.23 mentions this as well. It's on the screen here. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. If you, if you try to be a people pleaser, whoa, watch out. You're going to be like... The book of James talks about that double-minded man who's unstable in all his ways. You're going you're to be pushed around by everyone. You're, you're going to be swaying everywhere. You're going to be like, like the, the beach ball that's thrown in the ocean during a storm. You're going to be all over the show. And so to do something heartily here, by the way, it means you do it out of your soul. It's not an activity that's just done for shallow reasons. It's something coming from deep within you. It's an activity that's in line with what is inside your soul. That's what you're supposed to do. You do it heartily as to the Lord. Number four, if you don't have liberty, don't be involved. It's just that simple. It's okay to not have liberty in something. All right? 
It's okay. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Okay? You have to do it out of faith before God. Okay? Your opinions will probably be different from somebody else. That's okay. Somebody has said this. I don't know where this old quote comes from. If it's doubtful, it's dirty. <laughs> right? The Bible says in verse 23, here's how, here's how the Bible puts it in verse 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If, if you can't do it fully convinced in your mind that that's what God wants you to do, you shouldn't do it, whatever that is. So when you consider that participating in a questionable activity can actually do harm to someone's spiritual life, then it's just not worth partaking in it, is it? God is far more important. Our relationship and fellowship with God is far more important. And number five, last one here. Allow yourself to be educated. We haven't read these verses yet, so look at chapter 15, verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So, if you consider yourself to be a strong Christian, you have responsibilities. One of those responsibilities of a strong Christian is to do what here? To build that weaker Christian up. Edify that person. To strengthen that weaker brother. Now, part of doing that is uh, you, you teach them the Word of God. You teach them the Bible. Teach them what does the Bible say about these gray areas of life. Okay. So remember, one of the problems of the weaker Christian is they're lacking in knowledge. They, they don't know everything. And so hopefully you know some biblical principles that will aid them and help them and build them up. That's your responsibility. And so perhaps a weaker brother considers an issue to be sin. And, and a lot of times that might actually happen because of some previous teachings. Maybe it's something to do with their upbringing. Maybe it's something to do with a previous church. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Did you know that Mormon doctrine states that Mormons can't drink caffeine they can't have caffeine you can look it up it's on the web look on the world wide web the mormon doctrine states that i don't know exactly how it's worded but they're not allowed to drink things like coffee and tea and so forth right and uh i love that cup cup of coffee isn't that cute got a nice little smiley face some people some people that's like how they view their coffee cup in the morning right Ooh, it's makes you smile and uh, for a Mormon who's, who was who saved out of Mormonism, and they've been taught this you know, all their life, that, hey, I can't drink coffee or tea, they might have a serious problem when they come to Christ. They might be kind of stuck in that old knowledge, if you will. And they might think drinking coffee is, is a sin. Now, you might laugh at that, okay? But that's, that's the same issues that's going on here in the Bible. In Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, for a mature Christian, they, they, they look at this and say, hey, I, I don't care if I eat meat that's been offered to idol. 
And for me, I don't care if I have a cup of coffee in the morning. I don't see that as sin. But if I have a, if I have a Christian brother who's been saved out of Mormonism, you know what I might do? I might actually stop drinking coffee until his knowledge changes. So that new Christian needs to be taught the Bible. They need to understand that caffeine, drinking caffeine is not sin. But perhaps that weaker brother avoids coffee because they, they might actually consider it to be addictive. If you look at the next one, next screen here, that's, you know, you laugh. I found that on the web. You know, that's, that's how some people view coffee. It's like bowing down before the altar of caffeine. That's what they're doing. They're all worshiping caffeine. Ooh, I need caffeine. I can't live without caffeine. It, it gives me ultimate satisfaction, right? You laugh. There's people like that. <clears throat> you know, there's some people just don't talk to them before they have their cup of coffee, right? You, you ever met that person? Yeah, there's, they're out there. And, and there's even some people like this guy here. You know, it's, it's so addictive. It's like, come on, just, just put it directly into my veins, It's like a drug. Well, caffeine is a drug. It is, isn't it? And and so they they drink coffee. Some people get very irritable. And, of course, that's a a quality that Christians should not demonstrate. It's it's unchristlike to be irritable and annoying and grumpy and biting people's heads off. And if you're that way, maybe, maybe it is something you need to avoid, okay? But when it comes to gray area activities, the weaker brother should allow himself to be taught by those who are more mature. And they need to ask questions. You know, say, hey, uh, why do you drink coffee? Uh, you know, for me, it's, uh, you know, I was taught that it was a sin to drink anything with caffeine in it. So how, how is it you can do that? So they need to ask questions and and the more mature believer needs to show from the Scriptures why it's okay for, for them, anyway. It may be that after the information's been given to this weaker Christian, then they, then they maybe they can have some coffee. But in, in that case, the weaker brother's no longer weak after they've been taught. Then, after they've been taught, they actually become strong. They become mature. And by the way, let me be clear here. What is the difference between someone who is weak and somebody who's strong. And we're not talking physically. This is spiritually speaking here. What is the difference? Because some people think the difference is it's, you know, the person who can't eat the meat offered to idols is strong. Some say, well, no, they're the weak. And some say, well, the person who can go ahead and eat meat offered to idols or drink coffee or whatever it is, you know, that hey, that person's weak or that person's strong. It actually has nothing to do whether you participate in the activity or not. That doesn't make you weak or strong. It's not that the weaker brother avoids the activity while some some stronger Christian is actually partaking in an activity. That's not what makes you weak or strong. The difference between the two brothers and sisters is how the activity actually affects them. How does that activity affect you? Okay? If you can drink a cup of coffee and be godly and not sin and do it, you know, fully convinced in your mind that you're not sinning against God and God is pleased with you drinking coffee, fine, do it. If you can go buy meat that's been offered to idols 
and you're fully convinced God, this is what God wants you to do, and you might actually say, hey, I'm being a wise steward of God's money, right? Because the meat offered to idols is cheaper, usually. So I'm going to go ahead and do that, and God's going to be pleased with me as being a wise steward. Well, if you can do that, then do it. So the difference between the two is, how does that activity affect them? You see, the weaker brother is destroyed. He's grieved. He's defiled when he partakes in the activity. He's sinning against God. Whereas the stronger believer can do it and not sin against God. That's the difference. And and how do they actually respond to other believers who have different viewpoints? That's another way of, of seeing whether or not you're actually weak or strong. So let's finish by asking you the question, how should a believer respond to a weak believer, a weak Christian? How should you respond? Well, the Bible gives us heaps of instruction on this, so let me just quickly fly through these, okay? Number one, you need to respond with willing acceptance. That's what it means in verse 1, Romans 14, verse 1, when it says, welcome him. Welcome the weaker Christian. Think about it. Why should you welcome the weaker Christian? Because you're in the same family. Don't treat him as, as if he's an unbeliever. <laughs> that's, that's what some Christians do. It's like, oh, you had coffee? You're an unbeliever. Or you went to the movie theater? You are unsaved. Right? That's what some Christians do. No. God says you welcome this person, even if you disagree with them over gray areas. Welcome them. Accept them with open arms. You're in the same family. You're a child of God. Don't treat him like he's a child of the devil. <laughs> All right, anyway, uh, you've heard me say this before. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, love. Okay? Don't turn the non-essentials into essentials. Okay? You can have strong opinions, but you need to love people. Number two, don't sin in judgment on weak believers. Don't sit in judgment on weak believers. Romans 14.1 says, you're not to quarrel over your opinions. Don't quarrel over your opinions. Don't beat them up with your preferences. <laughs> That's what God is saying, basically. Don't beat someone up. We give them a tongue lashing. You may not do it with your fist, but you do it sometimes with your tongue. And number three, don't despise them, verse 3 says. The idea is there, you, you're considering this person as worthless. You know, you, you trash their opinions, you trash their ideas, you trash what they believe, and you just step on them and push them into the mud. God says, don't do that. Instead, you need to accept them. Lift them up. Don't push them down. And then number four, don't cause them to stumble into sin. Jesus gave grave warnings about causing someone to stumble into sin. This is the way Jesus said it. Tie a rope around your neck, get a really heavy weight, and throw yourself into the ocean. That's what he said. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. It'd be better for you to drown yourself in the depths of the ocean than to cause another believer to stumble. Don't do it. And then number five, don't grieve your Christian brother and sister. How are you to live? You, you live in love. Live in love. Verse 14 says, I, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. 
Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Your preferences don't really matter. It's more important you walk in love. You please God. Why why is this important to, to live and walk in love? Well, love is actually going to ensure that a strong Christian is sensitive to someone else's needs and their weaknesses. See, the problem is some, some, sometimes we, we're selfish, we're proud. We go around and we destroy people. We are really rough. We don't really care about other people's needs and what their weaknesses are. God says, you're being selfish and proud. You need to live in love. Number six, don't forfeit your witness to the world. Don't forfeit your witness to the world. Look at verse 16. I don't think we've read these yet. It says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Did you hear what God just told you to do? Uh, Are you to pursue your own way and your own preferences and your own opinions? Is that what's most important? No. (laughs) No, no, it's other people. It's what God, His kingdom, it's all about Him and His kingdom. And so there's a problem here. You can actually forfeit your witness to the world, and the world looks at you and says, wow, man. I mean, when, when unbelievers see someone who's supposed to be a mature Christian abusing their freedom, harming another Christian, then the unbelieving world is going to look at the church and look at you, and, and they're going to have the wrong opinion of God. They're going to conclude that Christianity is filled with unloving people, and it's going to reflect badly in God's reputation. Sadly, it's often true. That's the sad part. You ever had a conversation with an unbeliever? You're trying to witness to them? And some other person who claims to be a Christian has destroyed the Christian faith, at least in their eye and their heart? And they just say the Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. They're evil and wicked. I hate them. You ever come across someone like that? There's plenty of hypocrites out there. This is part of the problem. This this right here. They have forfeited their witness to the world because they're not loving. We are not loving. God help us to be loving. Number seven, don't tear down God's work. God is working. How is He working? In people. In people. Look at verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. How does that happen? Well, let's, let's read on. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So you destroy God's work in people if you cause them to stumble into sin. So beware of that. Don't do that. And so, by the way, in this context here, God's work refers to other believers, other Christians. And if you're doing that, what are you doing? You're actually committing a very serious sin against God. 
You, you have committed an offense against God himself by destroying his people. Whoa. Dangerous position to be in, isn't it? And number eight, don't flaunt your liberty. Don't be the proverbial peacock showing its huge feathers off. Hey, look, I can eat meat offered to idols. Or don't go in front of the, the guy who was just saved out of Mormonism and say, man, this coffee is really good. You should have one of these. Right? You know, don't flaunt it. Don't flaunt it. Look at I me. Mean, look at verse 22. The faith that you have, does it say flaunt? No. God says you keep between yourself and God. Keep between yourself and God. So if I have someone who, for example, is saved out of Mormonism, I'm not going to drink coffee in front of them. <laughs> I'll do it in private. I'll do everything I can to hide that from him. I only do it between me and God. That's the idea here. So don't flaunt your liberty. Number nine, help carry this person's burdens. And, and in the process, you're showing loving consideration to this person. That's what Romans 15:1's talking about. We who are strong, we have an obligation. In other words, God's commanding us to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's not about you. It's about pleasing God. Help lift that person up. Bear their burdens, their weaknesses, their failings, whatever those are. Help them. Don't destroy them. And then the last one, God says in verse 2, you build them up. Romans 15, 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. What often happens, though, is we tear people down. God says, build them up. That needs to be your concern. That's how you show love. You build them up. You encourage. You edify. But if, you, if, you're, if you're causing them to wonder if they're sinning, then you're not building them up. So we need to help them in all the ways we possibly can. Well, you say, man, this is, this is high. This is really high. This is hard. Whew. Man, there's a lot of areas I'm thinking of right now. How is this even possible? Well, look at Romans 15, verse 3. How am I going to do this? If that's what you're thinking, look at Romans 15, verse 3. For Christ did not please Himself. So immediately, you ought to be thinking, what is the model? What is my example here? How am I going to obey God in this way? Look to Christ. Okay, that's what verse 3 is telling us to do. Look to Christ. For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's awesome. That's the goal. And that's why we do it. May God cause us to bring glory to Himself as we live this out in our lives.